podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Disappearing Act. Hello and welcome to episode 40 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host Dan Tracy and this week we once again turn our attention to Germany with the second and certainly not the last edition of Das Real Fußballcast. All the major talking points from the Bundesliga will be discussed within the next hour. Well, of course, there's even more in the unfolding saga, which is otherwise known as Project Restart. And also, we'll be looking at the managerial vanishing act. More importantly, though, we once again have a full house. Carl's back from quarantine. That means he's leading the line this week and wearing the captain's armband. So, Carl, how have you been since we last spoke? Yeah, not too bad, thanks, Dan. Back, back from quarantine now. You know, the yellow, yellow wall took it out of me for a week. You know, we had such a good time out there. Nice. A resounding victory, but glad to be back talking to you guys about all things football again. Fantastic. And of course, I cannot forget your strike partner. That's Drew. He'll be supplying the goals from the other side of the pond. So, Drew, how have you been in the past week? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Carl, of course, I'm glad that you are back because I think we make a formidable front too. Um, but I'm excited to talk Bundesliga, talk all the other things happening in the Premier League and uh, with lots of football coming back. So couldn't be more excited. Yes, right. Before we do that, I'll do the social media bits first. First, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at StanTracy983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at RealFootballPod. If you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like it, leave a review so we move up the league table. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud and Audio Boom. While the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. Also, a big shout to our content partners at lastwordonfootball.com. Be sure to check out the excellent written work by Drew, some of the work that I do also after you've listened to this show. Right, it's time to go live. And where should we go first? Let's go to Germany again. And the second segment in Das Real Fußballcast. Now, by the time people listen to this podcast, there's every chance the game would have already taken place. With that said, Der Klassiker, Carl, between Borussia Dortmund and Bayern Munich is set up very, very nicely. Yeah, this is going to be a real, real good game, isn't it? You know, both came back with some good performances. Um, you know, Dortmund looked sharp, although obviously, you know, the Schalke goalkeeper looked like he'd had a good quarantine season, didn't he? Um, and wasn't looking the sharpest. But I think you've got a real good um, game in prospect here. And one that I think most neutral fans now who are kind of showing a bit of interest can't wait for this game. And, and, you know, see, see how this one pans out. Because I think we could have a real barnstorm with plenty of goals. Yeah, I think fans or no fans, this has got every sort of element to be fantastic. Good attacking play. Just the German football in general. It's always sort of swashbuckling. I think we're in for a real treat in about a few hours. So, Drew, with that in mind, Bayern hit five at the weekend against Eintracht Frankfurt, exacting some revenge for the 5-1 reverse last November. Does Saturday's 5-2 scoreline show that they can be got at or... Did they simply take their foot off the pedal at 3-0 and then they then thought, actually, we need to wake up a little bit? You know, I definitely think it's more of that latter. They simply just kind of fell asleep because both goals were scored from set pieces within a three-minute range. And that's not something you want to do, of course, and against a team like Dortmund that is lightning quick, that can counter with Erling Haaland, Jadon Sancho, and the like. You can't afford to do that. So that is something that Bayern has to be maybe not concerned with, but have to take notice of. They're not going to be able to switch off for a couple minutes. But I don't think this should be cause for concern. I think Carl hit the nail on the head perfectly with one of the last things he said, that this you're going to see 
tons of goals in this game. Bayern, of course, are very talented up front with the likes of Serge Gnabry, Robert Lewandowski, but even farther back, right? Thomas Muller is back into his best form under Hansi Flick, right? Alfonso Davies has been fantastic going forward. I do think he's a bit overrated. I don't think he's best left back in the world quite yet. Uh, I'm not on the hype train like everybody else. But going forward, as he's not really a defender, he's more of a, of a winger, he has done great for them on that left side. So Bayern have just as many weapons going forward, if not more, and against a Dortmund lo- a back line that always seems to fail in the big moments, always seems to be out of sync a bit. There's going to be tons of goals. This is going to be probably the most exciting game since the return from the coronavirus stoppage and probably the most exciting game in the world over the next few months. So this is going to be a cracker. I can't wait to watch it um, in a little bit. I I know you didn't ask me this, but I'm going to jump ahead and say it. I'm going with a high-scoring draw. I'm going with 3-3. This is going to be fun to watch. Well, I was going to ask for predictions. That's absolutely fine. Cole, I'll take your prediction as well. Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm actually gonna go for a Bayern win. Unfortunately, ah. I, I think they could nick this, but I think they could nick. I think this could be a four-three jobby um, around that sort of mark. Well, I think no one would have any complaints if that was the case from a neutral point of view. Carl, stay with you. You're supporting the black and yellow, obviously. James Sancho has been resting the last two games, but is that with the Tuesday mega clash in mind? Yeah, I think so. You know, I think you coming back in and obviously, you know, give, given the kind of teams that they've been playing, I, th- I think they can ease him back in and just make sure that he's ready to go, fully fit. You know, you don't want to take any chances. They've all been out for a long while. So given as well that he's a pacey player, you know, it's very easy for those kind of guys to pull much if they're not 100% ready. So I think they've just given him a little bit more time and obviously with this game in mind and make sure that when he when he starts, he's going to hit the ground running and be perfectly ready to go. I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing him again because I think he could run right here. Yeah, I mean, Sancho and Haaland looks quite the proposition for buying this evening. Obviously, Drew, Haaland didn't score at the weekend against Wolfsburg. They weren't at their swashbuckling best, shall we say. But again, we talk about tune-up fights that was the perfect performance to set up nicely against Wolfsburg on the Saturday for this coming Tuesday. Yeah, it definitely was. I think when you watch this game, you're right. It wasn't Dortmund's best performance. Holland as well up front. Uh, shout out to the American John Brooks, defender for Wolfsburg, who I thought did a, a pretty good job trying to contain Holland as much as he could uh, this weekend. So I think that was part of it. But as good as Holland has been this year, both when he was playing for Salzburg and then now at Dortmund, I almost think the fact that he didn't score this weekend or this past weekend is probably a bigger benefit to Dortmund than anything else. Because I imagine like a dormant volcano, he is going to be ready to explode later today against Bayern. Jerome Boateng has done well this year. He's been uh, reviving his career, so to speak. But still, he's getting older. He's got a lot of miles on his legs, and I think Holland's going to be able to torch him. David Alaba, if he plays uh, alongside Boateng as a center back, David Alaba, as good as he is, he's not really a center back. He's a left back that's had to play there because of injuries and different circumstances. So I think Holland has a really, really good chance of torching both of those guys, especially, again, if you see Alfonso Davies on the left side pushing up and not taking care of his defensive responsibilities, or if he's trying to contain Jaden Sancho and he's preoccupied with that, I think there's a real big opportunity for Holland here to go nuts and score two or even three goals. I think he's going to be a huge factor for Dortmund today. I think when you look at it, Cole, it's quite simply a case of if Bayern win, they're a huge step closer to title eight in a row. 
Drew referenced the fact that Dortmund don't quite do it at the big time. So this could be, for them, a real statement victory, couldn't it? You know, if they win this one, they're really in the hunt and the title race is blown wide open. Yeah, I think so. You know, Dortmund are one of those sides, aren't they, who sometimes, you know, can get really close, be looking in a good position and then suddenly have a slip up. Um, you know, who does that remind you of, Dan? You know, yeah, so <laughs> this could be one of the reasons why I kind of <laughs> seem to favour liking Dortmund a little bit. You know, they, they, they're very similar to another team, I suppose. Um, you know, that, that when it really matters, they kind of just let something slip or don't put the performance in. So, as we say, I think if they can get a performance in today and beat Bayern, then I think that really sets them up to go on a charge and the momentum kind of swings a little bit towards them. But if Bayern win and suddenly, you know, if they actually kind of convincingly win this game, then I think you're just looking at the red train running towards that title and no one will stop it. Of course, the title focus does not just lie there because Bayern Leverkusen have entered the race for the top four after, I guess, a very impressive win over Borussia Mönchengladbach and their Kabul fans. Now, Drew... We'll talk about Kai Havertz in a minute, but it's not just the Kai Havertz show. It really is a team effort at the Bayer Arena at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, the thing about Bayer Leverkusen is I think they're, they're, they're one of these teams that they always finish below the top teams. They always finish below Munich. They always finish below Dortmund. And so I think a lot of people see them as kind of a middling team. But I think they've done fantastic under Peter Bosch this year. Um, Kai Havertz, of, of course, but... If you look at some of the other guys that they have, Diaby has been great uh, for them so far as another perfect example in attack. So I think if you look at Leverkusen right now, they're a little bit underrated for the most part. However, I think because they're the only league in town or the Bundesliga, I mean, I think people are starting to really see how good they can be, whether it's Kai Havertz or whether it's another one of their players. I think teams are or people around the world are finally getting getting a chance to see how well they can flourish, how much they can blossom when given the opportunity and really given the exposure. This was a fantastic win over uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach. And for a moment, Leverkusen was up to third, I believe, uh, in the Bundesliga table. Uh, they eventually got leapfrogged by Leipzig. But I think this team should be challenging for a Champions League spot. And honestly, I think they're good enough to have it, I don't want to say guaranteed, but they shouldn't be dropping out of the top four at this point. Leverkusen is definitely good enough to compete in Europe, and they're showing it right now. And credit to them, everyone is being able to see it, and they're not buckling under the pressure. So I think well-deserved for Leverkusen in this fight for the Champions League. Yeah, hiatus aside, they're unbeaten in 11 Bundesliga matches. The last two since the restart, they've blown their opposition out of the water. I'm firmly on this Bayer bandwagon because I think they've been a real joy to watch, and I think Kai Havertz has been the star of the show. Now, Cole, four goals in two matches. I'm now thinking to myself, I'd love to see him in Tottenham colours. Do you share that same opinion? He certainly looks a good player, doesn't he, Dan? Um, you know, and, and everything he does about him, he looks exciting. I, I guess the one good thing here as well, you could sort of say, you know, if you're looking at players who could come in and possibly hit the ground kind of running and have an impact, then I think, you know, the German league is probably pretty close to the English league um, and the Premier League there. So, again, I don't think you'd have that same concern about, well, yeah, but it's OK to do it in that league. You know, if it was a French league with PSG, you'd be thinking, yeah, but the opposition isn't that great. You know, I think the German league is probably as close as I reckon you could get to the Premier League. So, I'll tell you now, if it was in the papers tomorrow that we'd signed him, you certainly wouldn't be disappointed, that's for sure. And you'd certainly feel you've got a player there that could add something. 
yeah, he's a very exciting talent. I just think, unfortunately, there might be a few teams higher up the hierarchy have also got him on his radar. But that said, Drew, you had a theory about Havertz and his positional play, and if Spurs somehow did land him, it could mean the end of Deli Alley. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Kai Havertz, so far for Leverkusen since the restart, but just a lot of times, he plays as either the number nine or as a false number nine, and that's not his best position. I think he's much better as a second striker or as a 10 dictating uh, dictating the the play, uh, the pace of the game. And if he's going to go to Spurs, I think he's probably going to beat out Deli Alley for that job. And I think he's going to bring the end or uh, bring the demise of, of Deli Alley at Tottenham. So I think that's something interesting to consider. I think he would be a great pickup for Spurs. I think he could do fantastic things there, especially with Harry Kane in front of him um, and Son and, and, and everyone else, of course. If he's going to be in a Jose Mourinho 4-2-3-1, that's a perfect position for him right in the middle. A lot of teams around the world, especially the top teams, don't play with number 10s. They play a lot of 4-3-3s, and so he doesn't really fit in a lot of those systems. He can play out wide, don't get me wrong, but his best position is central. And Jose Mourinho is one of the last managers at you know an upper echelon team that still has a central playmaker. And so I think he would be a very good fit for Spurs. Again, Deli Alley's probably out the door. And then, like you mentioned, is Spurs going to be able to pay for him? Is he going to want to go to Spurs? I think those are kind of the bigger questions to consider right now. But again, I think Havertz would flourish wonderfully playing centrally for Spurs. It all sounds very exciting, Cole. And Cole, I know you have advocated in the past selling Deli Alley to get bigger funds in to then sort of reshape your squad. If you got rid of Ali to get in Havertz, that wouldn't be the worst transfer strategy now, would it? No, I don't think so at all, especially when you consider, obviously, you know, we've now got the Celso coming through, haven't we? So, as I've said, you know, I, I, don't get me wrong, I still love Deli Ali and I still think he can probably do some great things for us. But sometimes you may have to get rid of one of your crown jewels for the greater good in the long term. And as I've said before, you know, I would possibly be looking at maybe using him as that player where you could still maybe get around, you know, 70 mil, 80 mil mark um, and use that to bring in a couple of players maybe and improve yourself overall, you know, a bit like Liverpool with a Coutinho deal. Um, so if that, if that was there and, and I am kind of director of football or in charge and someone puts that deal to me, I'd be very tempted to hit the accept button um, and, and take them up on that. Right, so we've done our fancy shopping list for Spurs. Drew, we shouldn't forget about your boys, RB Leipzig. After a slip-up in week one of the restart phase, they answered their critics with an emphatic win on Sunday. What did you take from that? And more importantly, can Tino Werner win the German Golden Boot this season? He definitely can't. I w oh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I want to say he's either like one behind or, or tied with Lewandowski for the uh, for the golden boot race right now. But yeah, he was absolutely fantastic in this match. And that was that was what I was thinking with Leipzig was first week back, they were really sharp except in front of goal. They had not the greatest day finishing, but this time against Mainz, they were absolutely fantastic. Werner with a hat trick, Yusuf Paulsen got another one who I think was actually an unsung hero in this match in terms of attack. He had a hand in four of the five goals, so he was great. Um, but Leipzig, they had everything back. They were uh, quick, like always, crisp passing, and then finishing in front of goal. So this was a perfect performance for them and exactly what they needed to get back on track. For Timo Werner, I think he definitely has a shot at the golden boot in the Bundesliga, but it's just he's taking on 
one of the greatest strikers in the world in Lewandowski. So, of course, it's going to be a tough battle. I think one thing that is going to help him in his pursuit of the goal-scoring title is Leipzig has a pretty favorable schedule for the remaining of the year. They only really play mid-table teams and below, except for uh, one match against Dortmund, but that's it. So they have a lot of games that are really going to help him, you know, for lack of a better word, pad his stats and definitely get up there. But I don't mean that in a negative way. The fact that he's already on 24 goals with still seven matches remaining is a testament to him. He's been fantastic this year. Um, He did have a stretch of, I want to say it was... 11 games where he only scored one or two goals so, or something like that. So that really hurt him. Um, but now he's back flying. And I think Timo Werner is another person, kind of like Kai Havertz, who is taking this opportunity in front of the world as the only league playing right now to really show how good he can be and how quick he is, how dangerous he is on the counter, and how good of a finisher he is. He is a number nine at times, but he drifts out wide and can be fantastic in a lot of positions. So Timo Werner, I think he's also another one that a lot of clubs are going to try and line up a big money move for him whenever the transfer window opens this summer. Yep, he's certainly going to be on the shopping list of many, that's fair to say. But, Joe, I'll stay with you, because on Sunday you were telling me that the US feel of the Bundesliga was piping in crowd chants, and I was like, yes, I need more of this. So this is something we discussed in the K-League two, three weeks ago, and I'll tell you what, I'm on board, because, you know, fake crowd or not, it just adds that little bit more to the game. I take it you're a fan as well. Oh, yeah. I absolutely love this. And so just just to explain a little bit about it. So from my understanding, the Bundesliga has given the option to the broadcasters if they want to add crowd noise or not. And so I believe for you guys in England, BT did not have it, correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so then Fox over here, they chose to use it. And honestly, I think this was a phenomenal decision. I loved it. And the thing that I loved most about the crowd noise was it wasn't just white noise of a constant cheer on repeat for 90 minutes. There was somebody behind the scenes that was controlling it because whenever there was a hard foul on a Mainz player, you heard boos and whistles. So there was somebody clearly watching the game and having the you know, fake chants and uh, crowd noise react to the game. And so that's what I felt, or that's what made me feel that it was real. Or, or I kind of forgot that there weren't fans in the stadium, I think it added to the experience so much as a fan watching TV on TV. It made it made it seem like normal, for lack of a better word. So I love this, and I think the Bundesliga needs to continue doing this for every match. And I think that a- any match that comes back, whether it's you know in the Premier League in Serie A, they need to do this because it makes the TV experience so much better. You know, I heard a good analogy from uh, Alexi Lawless former U.S. men's national team defender, and now he uh, he works for Fox Sports, actually. But he made a comparison. He said, watching a football match on TV without crowd noise in an empty stadium with echoes and you can hear every scream and crunching tackle, it's like watching a hard rock band play an acoustic show. <laughs> it just loses its effect. It's not the same. And so I, I completely agreed with him, especially after watching this. Like I said, the most important part for me was that someone was in control and reacting to the game. That's what I thought was fantastic. And even if you look at the other game from this weekend, I believe it was a Cologne Dusseldorf, they had different chants. They had like, you know, the Viking Iceland chant. Um, I don't know if, if that's particular to either of those teams, um, but they had different ones. So it's not just the same chant for 90 minutes every single match. The fact that it's different, 
It's supposed to be catered to each individual team, and they have someone reacting to the match. I think is perfect, and I think Fox set a massive precedent in a good way, and everyone else needs to be following this from here on out. Cole, are you sold on that? Uh, I think it's one of them, isn't it, Dan? You know, it, it, it's Drew said there, if you've got someone who's reacting to the game, um, then I think it could really work well because it could at least give you that feeling of, of almost the fact there is a crowd there and, you know, it, it could also get you a little bit more involved. I think, you know, if things were just being pumped in randomly at certain points of like, oh, OK, let's just play a song now, <laughs> then I think you kind of lose it and you think, oh, this is a bit naff. But I think, yeah, if you've got someone who's really reacting well to the game, um, then I think it could work and it could add that element that those of us who kind of are missing that crowd noise when watching a game, we, we, you know, it's something we probably crave. So I think it is one of them. If it's done well, I think it could really work. If it's done poorly, I think you'd be sitting there going, what is going on here? This is a horror show. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I'd be keen for us to see it over here and see it working like that. Yeah, I think that's the crux of the issue, that if it was just some sort of monotone noise going on for 90 minutes, you'd be like, oh, turn this racket off, I've had enough. But if it's actually tailored to the match, then I guess what it is doing, and what us as football fans, when we watch it at home, is we're not really watching it for the fans per se in attendance, it's the noise that they make. So if you can circumnavigate that issue by re recreating the noise, then you don't really necessarily need fans from that aspect. Of course, you need them from a revenue generation point of view, but if we can sort of cheat a little bit, then the actual product itself that you're watching at home shouldn't be damaged that much. So I think it is workable, and I think obviously Fox have got a good idea here. Whether the Premier League will follow suit, I don't know. I hope they do, but you know what people are like, traditionalists and all that, you'll get a lot of moaning, so we'll have to sort of see how that lies. But Carl, whatever your stance on crowd noise, I don't think anyone can argue that the games have been bad. Yes, they've lost a bit of intensity, maybe because that feeds back to the lack of noise as well in the ground, but... It's certainly living up to its reputation as a league that delivers lots of goals. I think I've watched four or five matches in total now, and each of them have had four goals per game. Not anyone's going to complain about that, are they? No, certainly not, you know, for in, for in terms of the goal situation. I, I do kind of think, Danny, it's like I think, as we said before, when, it, when we return, that the chances are you're going to have this kind of, these first few games are going to have that kind of friendly type feeling to it. Um, those kind of like first couple of games of the season where there's no real form to go on and teams are still finding their way and players are settling in. And I think that's what we're seeing right now here in Germany. You know, those first few games, we're seeing lots of goals, probably teams still trying to get themselves up to pace and get match fit and everything again. Um and, and I think that's a big contributing factor. And again, like as we said, teams who've got nothing to play for, are they really going back with the same intensity that they would have maybe continued the season with if, they, if there hadn't had been this break? Um, I kind of get the feeling lots of those teams, if you're just in mid-table and you're now just gone back to see out the remaining games to get relegation and the title sorted, I think lots of those sides will be prepping for next season already and trying to, you know, maybe bring in things of, well, let me try this. Let's see what, how this works, because I, I think I might go with this next season. So I think you're probably seeing a lot of teams kind of mix it up a little bit and try some new things, because there's nothing on the line for them. Um, and, and those are the reasons why I think we're seeing plenty of goals. But I'm all for it. If that continues, it makes the watching even better, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you what is interesting, actually. Out of the 18 matches that have been played since the restart, only three have been won by home teams. Drew, is home advantage now being nullified completely? 
Maybe a little bit. You know, I, I will say that's part of the reason that I think later today Dortmund and Bayern are going to draw. If they had the fans, I definitely would have leaned Dortmund. I, I do think the home field advantage has gone away a little bit. But also, I mean, if you if you look at the, the games that have been played, you know, take Bayern Munich going to Union Berlin. I mean, they would have crushed them anyways, even if the fans were there. So, I, you know, I, I do think that matters a little bit. Don't get me wrong with with the fans not being there. But I think also it's probably these teams are better and that's and that's why they're winning. Um, I do think the, the crowd plays into it a little bit. And with that being said, if, if I could go back just just a, just a second. Yep. I actually want to see the crowd noise pumped into the stadiums because like Carl was talking about earlier when he said, you know, the Bundesliga is probably closest to the Premier League. I agree with that wholeheartedly. As we're talking about now with all the different goals scored, I think playing the crowd noise in the in the stadium would actually kind of amp up the players. It would kind of get them, not that they're lacking any motivation, but give them that extra jolt of energy. You know, I felt that way just watching the games on TV. And so I think that could be another thing that would help, you know, the the home side is if you have someone operating the sounds and when calls go against them, if, you know, the referee is hearing fake boos or fake whistles, maybe that puts pressure on them, kind of like a, a home crowd normally would. Maybe it gives the players that little extra oomph in the 90th minute to to fight for that last corner and, and try and head in a winner. So I, I think that home teams have lost a little bit. Don't get me wrong. Like I said, ultimately it comes down to, to who's the best team. But I think crowd noise in the stadium would be one way to give that home field advantage, whatever has been lost, to give that back to the home teams. I was going to ask some questions, but to be honest, I can't really be bothered because I think it's just the same that we've been going on about for the last sort of five, six weeks. So I'm going to do everyone a favour <laughs> and move on to our new topic for this week is the managerial disappearing act. Now, names such as Paolo Di Canio, Roberto Di Matteo, Tim Sherwood, the list goes on. We're going to discuss a few of them now. Carl, I'll offer you one first. He's arguably the perfect example of a manager uh, disappearing. David O'Leary, good at Leeds, average at Villa, gone then, not seen since. You'd have to say quite a spectacular disappearing act from the four Irish international. Yeah, it's, it's hard to work out, isn't it? Because like, as you say, you know, when, when he was managing Leeds, he, he was pushing them, you know, they looked, they was a really good side, weren't they? You know, Champions League, pushing for titles. And you thought, wow, you know, did this guy has obviously clearly, you know, got something about him. But you say again, goes to Villa, not the greatest. Um, and then, yeah, you never hear from him again, which is really strange because you think, well, he was looking good. They were looking half decent, playing some decent, attractive football. Why is this man all of a sudden just dropped off the cliff in football terms? Because you, when you consider some of the managers who keep seeming to find themselves in a job, you know, Mark Hughes, you know, people like that, where it's quite clear you'd go, I would never want to see Mark Hughes be put in the hot seat at Spurs, you know. Uh, don't The guy's had his chance. It's not going to happen for him. Um, but he still finds himself in a job regularly, even though he fouls at the previous job. Um, yet these managers who've done, you know, reasonably well, and you've never heard of him again. You know, where is David O'Leary? You know, what is he doing right now? Um, it is really strange that that happens to him, isn't it? In, and I don't suppose anyone could, unless there's something personal, um, some personal things goes goes on in that guy's life, and then suddenly you've got people going, actually, we don't, we're not going to touch this guy, um, and, and he's now kind of blackballed, if you like. But you'd have thought that would have come out by now in the press, or someone would have leaked something that it would have got out there. So yeah, really hard to explain this one, Dan. Yeah, because I think usually it's a 
could be one of three options. It's either that they are a bad egg and they have been blackballed, like you said, but you know nothing's ever really tarnished O'Leary, so you think that's not an option. Too many failures. He's only a manager twice, so he hasn't really sort of failed again and again and again. Or perhaps maybe a lack of desire. Is that maybe the reason that he's been sort of kicked out twice and thought, do you know what, I've got enough money, that'll do? Yeah, you could think that, can you? Yeah, you, you could kind of think, you know, he's tasted the high life, um, you know, with, with Leeds. They, they were flying high. Um, it didn't quite work as well again at Villa. And, and then maybe, as you say, maybe he's sitting there thinking, actually, what needs to be put into this job? I'm not actually got the desire now to do that. You know, I don't have the financial requirement to do it. Um, and I'm, I've kind of lost that that kind of desire to get back involved. Um, you know, if I look at us, Dan, you know, one of the managers that you kind of think, when you consider how close we were to what we could have achieved, you know, David Cleet, when he had his first spell at Spurs, you know, in 87, you know, at one point we were on for the treble that season, you know, the domestic treble. It was looking on and we were playing some of the most exciting football you've ever seen. Obviously, we, you know, we, we end up with nothing. Surprise, surprise. Um, and then the next season, it all kind of just fell apart. Now, we know he had his little personal issue that kind of ended up getting him, you know, the sack in the end or moving away from the job. But you would have thought, given how he had us playing at that point, someone else would have then taken, you know, a chance on him full time. He's dipped his toe in again in like caretaker manager roles and that with us and kind of just stepped in for a little while. But no one has ever taken him again full term and said, we want you to be the guy who runs this. So I think it can only be the desire and that maybe those guys have said, I, I don't need the hassle anymore, thanks. Drew, Chelsea seems to be a culprit of being off managers never to return. One example is Roberto Di Matteo. Now, he won the Champions League in 2012, but you could argue the players won it for him. After that, there was a few jobs of diminishing returns. And then since then, nothing. So has his managerial ship sailed for good? I think definitely at this point it has. And I think I, I, I'll, I'll agree with you 100% in that when they won the champ, when he won the Champions League with Chelsea, a lot of it probably came down to the players. I mean, they didn't have a great season that year anyways. Not going to remind you guys what happened when they won the Champions League. No, Spurs no, was no. not into not into next year. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean, I didn't mean to remind you of that. Um, but in all honesty, I think the problem with Di Matteo is I think winning the Champions League kind of became a poison chalice to his career because every next job was expecting him to do something of the like. And don't forget that year, Chelsea also won the FA Cup. So, you know, they had a double for all intents and purposes, even though they were awful in the league. And so when he went to Schalke, when he went to Aston Villa after that, I think the fact that they weren't flying high, they weren't at the top of the league, they weren't doing anything significant, whether in Germany or, or England, I think the people above him probably looked and said, what's going on, man? You motivated your team that was doing terrible with Chelsea that year to go and win the Champions League final. And I will, I'll be the first one to admit, Chelsea had no business being in the Champions League final or beating Bayern Munich on the day. Um, but I think people saw that and said, how could you get that done? But now with Aston Villa or when he was at Schalke, you, you can't seem to win you know, any string of games. What's going on? And so I think the fact that he couldn't live up to the hype is kind of what has doomed him in his managerial career. Um, possibly unfortunate or, um, uh, excuse me, unfairly, 
But that's kind of the way the cookie crumbles. And so I think that's why DiMatteo hasn't managed since, what is it, 2014 or 15, something like that. Um, and, and I think it's going to be hard, especially at this point, um, kind of like you guys talked about with O'Leary, is this many years out of management, this many years out of the game, who's going to bring him back now? Who's going to take a chance on him uh, for, who is, for all intents and purposes, a you know mediocre manager? Now he's also been out of the managerial game for several years. Who's really going to take a chance on him? I don't think anyone. And so I think for kind of all those reasons combined, it's very unlikely to see DiMatteo taking another job. Or if he does, he's going to have to start kind of at the bottom of the totem pole in a lower league, uh, whether it's in England or somewhere else, and have to work his way back up as if he were you know, a young up-and-coming manager. I think that's really the only way he could do it again if he so chooses. This is it. I mean, like you said, he's basically created a rod for his own back. Unless he goes on some Zidane monster run and does a three-peat with Chelsea in the Champions League, then everything he does is down thereafter. And he has been caught in some sort of negative cycle of bad stints at other clubs. And then you think, well, he's been out of the game for so long, any top-tier clubs thought, no, he's not really worth touching. So does that mean he loses desire? It's hard to sort of tell, really, but he's never really a name which is circulating around jobs at the moment. So you probably think his time... Uh, He's done. Yes, Cole, continue. I think as I think as well there, Dan, obviously what what you know, yeah. given the fact that obviously how it's worked out for him as well, obviously, you know, you've got those rumours, haven't you, as was he really managing the team at that point? You know, I think a lot of people's view was that potentially, you know, Terry and Lampard were the ones kind of running things in that dressing room while Di Matteo was there. So I guess as well, if he'd gone on somewhere else and had success, people might have gone, well, no, obviously it's, it's clearly this guy and he's got something about him. The fact he's gone on to other jobs now and it's never happened for him, it just, you know, maybe re-emphasises that point of like, well, actually... Was he really having an impact at Chelsea or was he just a front man and everything being run behind the scenes was being done by others and he was just the front guy in there? You know, yeah, you can take the credit if it works, but if it doesn't work, you are going to bite the bullet. Um, and, and he kind of just got lucky that they had a good side that managed to get them and, and win that Champions League in the end. Yeah, that could be true. I guess, Drew, if that is the case, does that mean he's been found out to a certain degree that he can't replicate his Chelsea work? Because really, the Chelsea players are doing the work for him. Yeah, I 100% agree with what Carl said. I mean, when you have club legends, but also you could say, you know, some of the best players in the world at that time. When you have Terry, who was captain leader legend for his entire career. Lampard, like Carl mentioned. You know, throw in Peter Cech, DDA Drogba. You have all those guys in the dressing room. I mean, think about this. As good as those individual players were, again, I know that season Chelsea wasn't, you know, anything spectacular, but when you have players of that caliber and several of them, how much coaching do they really need at this point? You know, how much does Roberto Di Matteo need? To, like, does Peter Cech not know how to take a goal kick? Does Frank Lampard not know how to send a through ball? You know, at, at that point, it really is just, it's just man management. And so I, I think Carl's right. The fact that Chelsea won with Di Matteo in charge, you could say, all right, you know, maybe he had a hand in it, but let's see. When he then goes to the other jobs, ooh, probably didn't have so much of an influence in the dressing room. And I mean, even uh, that year, oh, who, oh my God, who did Di Matteo replace? I'm blanking on it. IVB? Whoever, was it? Whoever, no, I, no. I don't remember. It doesn't oh, matter. <laughs> Whoever he replaced at Chelsea that year, I'm, I'm blanking on it. But, you know, the players said after that they took responsibility for the sacking. 
and Di Matteo coming in to take over for the rest of the season as as the interim. And so I think the players, like Carl said, kind of took it upon themselves and were really uh, running things in the dressing room at that point because they felt the responsibility, they felt the onus of the manager getting sacked. And so they didn't want to do that again to Di Matteo. They didn't want to do that again to themselves. And so I think I agree with Carl 100% that Di Matteo probably didn't have to do that much in the dressing room uh, other than write the names on the team sheet. And then when he went to future clubs, Schalke and Aston Villa, you saw that he didn't have much of an influence on the squads there either. Cole, of course, Tottenham are not immune to a disappearing act or two. You only have to bring out the name Tim Sherwood to bring fans out into a cold sweat. What's your honest assessment? Of, okay, exactly. Well, this probably is the answer. <laughs> what, what's your, <laughs> your honest assessment of Captain Tim's reign? Did he talk a good game rather than manage one? I think one of the problems Tim had, wasn't he, was that, you know, some of the fans actually liked what he did. You know, like I remember, obviously, you know, after the defeat against uh, against Chelsea, funnily enough, at Stamford Bridge, when, you know, you could see that Spurs kind of just threw the towel in that day. And he kind of came out in the press conference after, didn't he, and kind of threw the players under the bus um, and kind of just ripped into them as like some of them are not trying X, Y and Z, you know, this and that. They're letting themselves down and everything. And I think, you know, the trouble for Tim was he, he might have been kind of, you know, after his time, you know, that might have worked in the 70s and 80s. Um, but I think you're in an era now where if you go calling players out in the press and kind of throwing them under the bus as such, you just end up, you know, you're going to have trouble and then things will turn ugly for you pretty quickly. You know, you also had little incidences like the gilet. Uh, um, <laughs> I think it was one of the last home games. That's right. You know, he pulled a member of the crowd out <laughs> and let them put the gilet on and stand on the touchline. And you're just sitting there thinking, listen, Tim, if you want to be taken seriously, you know, these are not the sort of things you should be doing if you want to be taken seriously, because these kind of just make you look like you're messing around and you're not really, you know, you know, you're kind of a gimmick man. And if it's not working, what else do you bring? So I don't think Tim probably helped himself. Um, he might have been doing really well behind the scenes. You know, some of the players may have loved him. Some of them might not, which, which could be the same for any manager, I guess. You know, if you're, if you're playing, you love the manager. If you're not, you don't like him. Um, but I think it was all those little things around him, you know, the gilet, the bringing a you know, member of the crowd out to stand on the touchline, wanting to be the every man like the supporter, you know, after the game. I'll drag a fan into the changing room and rip you lot out at half-time. It just doesn't work now and players don't respond to it. So you've got to change your ways with that. And maybe that's why he struggled to get himself back in the game since then. You know, after Villa, it hasn't really happened for him. Maybe, you know, I think clubs, you know, chairman think, not for me, thanks. I don't think I want the circus that might come my way once you're in a job. Yeah, I think anything after that salute to Adebayo on the touchline, that was def just done for me. I just think that. Like, just, like you say, he's just too gimmicky. He's almost like some, from a bygone era, and he's not even that older manager. You know, you can compare him to someone like Ron Atkinson or something, but he just, yeah, I think that ship has sailed for him. Uh, I, I'll expect to see him on Harry's Heroes at some point <laughs> soon, Dan. Good yeah. shout. <laughs> Very good shout. <laughs> well, the fact he didn't even make that 11 probably says more about his own talent now. But anyway, Drew, Paolo Di Canio. He's a lively character, it can be said. On the Sunderland touchline, certainly. He hasn't managed anywhere in five years. Does he still have some coaching ability left to offer? Or are his more fascist viewpoints probably warding off potential employers right now? Yeah, I think 
definitely that second one. And, you know, so, you know, you're not throwing out this word to, to slur him in any way. No, he no, is no, self-proclaimed, self-proclaimed on TV. Um, I, I think that's definitely the case. I mean, even when, when he was coaching, um, I, oh, I wrote it down. Where was it? When he was at uh, Sunderland and Swindon. Oh, here we go. I found it. So at Swindon, when he got hired, one of their advertisers dropped their sponsorship of the team. He cost them money, essentially, right? At Sunderland, the vice chairman quit when he got hired. So if you're going to cost an organization money, if you're going to you know, make some of their, their, their leaders in the organization quit – then you're probably not a good fit for them. I mean, what you know, that's the number one rule in business. And and I know it's you can't always look at football as a business, but just as an organization. If you have someone coming in who's pissing off everyone, making people quit, turning turning off advertisers, then you can't afford to have him. I mean, even when he worked for, I believe it was Sky Italia, he got in trouble and he got suspended. Um, one of one of his tattoos, which I believe it was alluding to uh Mussolini, you know, uh was shown on air. He had a short sleeve shirt on if I remember correctly. And he got suspended from sky Italia because of that. So, you know, he's had all these different issues. Um, and, and I'm look, I, I don't agree with him politically and I'm going to guess a lot of people don't. Um, I generally, I don't think people should be fired just because they have a certain political belief. I mean, as far as I know, DeCanio has not killed anyone or done anything like that. Um, but if you're going to piss off that many people and you're going to cause your company to lose money, they're not going to keep you in the job. And so no matter how good of a manager you are, right, at Sunderland when he kept them up with a big win over Newcastle, at Swindon I believe he got them promoted, um, you can do all those great things. But if you're making the if you're making the club lose money, there is no reason for them to keep you because that's ultimately what it's about is you have to make them money. Yes, you want results on the pitch. Don't get me wrong. But good results and losing money can only go so far. And so I think that's the reason DeCanio hasn't gotten another job. I think just, you know, point blank, people don't like him is probably what it comes down to. And so it's hard for me to see him getting another job. Maybe, maybe West Ham. Maybe that would be the club that, that would want to take him on as a manager. But that's it. Yeah, I think that might be a stretch. Even that might be a approach with caution. But Cole... In terms of managers that disappear, some get sucked into the comfort of TV work and they don't want to try their luck again. The prime example here, Gary Neville. After his stint at Valencia, you get the feeling that his managerial fingers have been burnt once and for all. Yeah, I think you're massively putting a reputation on the line then as well, aren't you? You know, if you're going to go on telly and basically openly kind of criticise defenders for not doing this or not doing that, teams for not working this way or not doing that, then if you're going to step into the lion's den and it doesn't work for you, quite rightly, people are going to say, well, actually, what do you know? Because you put yourself in the hot seat and you was a horror show. Um, I think it was kind of why at one point, wasn't it? Andy Gray never took the Everton job. That's right. Because I think he was Sky's main man, wasn't he? And I can imagine he sat there and thought, this is very tempting. But given everything I've done and the way I've kind of critiqued players, if I go and make myself look a right tip by not being able to manage then my TV career after that has gone because people will just go, well, hold on, does this boat really know his stuff? So I think, yeah, once if, if, you, if TV's working for you, I think you probably stay there given the fact that you don't need to put that time and effort in and commitment to the job and you're still earning yourself um, a pretty penny and making yourself look very intelligent to, to the viewers every week. 
Drew, another example of someone who looks if, like... If I could add something on, on Gary Neville yeah, real sure. quick. Yeah, um, Right, he flamed out hard at Valencia in, in only a, a couple months. But kind of what uh, Carl was talking about, you know, criticizing defenders, criticizing coaches, criticizing teams and players. Uh, there's a quote from Hernan Crespo in 2016 talking about Gary Neville. He said, and here's the quote, to watch a game from the TV, it's very different than from the bench. I'm almost happy for Gary Neville's troubles at Valencia. I remember he was too harsh as a TV pundit. And so I think Carl's kind of right in that, you know, you can do it from you can do it from the studio, but when you get on the field or on the pitch, it's a completely different view that you have. It's a different way. You have to actually manage the players. You have to make the in-game changes. It's different than watching it on TV. I will not go as far as saying as just as Crespo that I'm happy that Gary Neville failed. I, I don't want to see people really fail at their jobs. Um, but it is kind of a, you know, it, it came back to, to bite him in the butt, essentially, with as harsh as he has been on TV. And I guess I haven't noticed, but, but would you guys say since he got fired at Valencia, do you think Gary Neville is, is a little bit more lenient or a little bit um, – more careful with his comments and criticisms of people when he's on Sky? Um, I think careful is better than lenient because I still think he goes in for players. But I do feel Carl's just a, a viewpoint that because he's been on the other side of the fence, there's a bit more of a humbleness to him. Yeah, I think I'd imagine now what you'd see is he'll only really go for a player if it's a real obvious error. Um, you know, I think we had the prime example, didn't we, after the uh, Man United Man City game when him and Roy Keane were almost coming to blows in the studio because, you know, you've got Gary Neville actually trying to basically defend defenders not getting back and putting tackles in, where I think before he'd managed, he might have been prepared to be a bit more like Roy Keane and just like, no, that's not the United way. They should have been doing this and that where he actually then tried to be a little bit more diplomatic. And Roy Keane wasn't the one having it. You know, he was sitting there going, no, you, you know, this is ridiculous. It was a two yards the bloke had to run. So I think he probably is now thinking, I'm only going to really go in when I know I'm 100%. I can't be kind of pulled up and kind of, you know, made to look silly over this when someone puts my Valencia reign in the highlight and says, well, yeah, you, you can still be like this, but you went and proved you couldn't do it yourself when it when it came to talk the talk. And the same for England because, you know, he was a he was, you know, Roy's second hand man, wasn't oh, yeah, he? England. And yeah. obviously, you know, it, it never really worked there. So he has got those couple of blocks on his record book now where I think he probably does have to be a little bit careful. Yeah, I think now he's sort of tested that well he's been tested. He can't be sort of treated as gospel and you can quite easily say, Well hang on, Gary X, Y, Z, you weren't that good in England or Valencia either. So I think he can, <laughs> he's still got, you know, the remit to throw players under the bus when required. But like you say, you can't go with both feet because you can quite easily point back and say, well, hang on, you weren't the shining example that you think you were. That said, Drew, Roy Key was just mentioned. He's another one who looks now, who's, I don't know, being a bit more comfy in the TV studio rather than the, the touchline. Do you think that club chairman have got to the point where because of his such forthright views and his lack of man management he's not really worth the hassle anymore i i don't think roy Keane is even interested in in being a manager again <laughs> yeah, honestly that, that. Uh, yeah i mean part of it is probably just because like you said how, how many teams really want to you know take a chance on him is he really going to connect with players nowadays that probably do have a different mindset um or different you know viewpoint than they did when he played. 
you know, as firm as he is in his opinions or strong or outspoken, however you want to say it, um, I don't know if that would really jive well with players nowadays. And, you know, the, the more he waits, the younger the players get and kind of the wider that disconnect between kind of the way he sees things and the way that players now do. So I don't really see him going back into it. And plus, honestly, I don't know if you guys feel the same way. I may not agree with everything Roy Keane says, but I love watching him. You know, obviously, I don't get to see him all that much over here uh, in the States. But when I can see clips of him on YouTube, he's hilarious. Maybe for the wrong reasons. Absolute, <laughs> Absolute but, box office, isn't he? Roy Keane is box office oh, yeah, yeah. stuff when he's on. Exactly. I mean, it, and so he, he oh, go did ahead. something with Gary Neville, didn't he, at one point? And if you can watch that interview with him, Gary Neville, I think it was for an Irish website. Um, there's some stuff in there about his time with Man United and him and Alex Ferguson. Um, there's some stuff there about with the Irish team, John Waters and that kind of thing, where you just think, wow, again, I think Roy is one of those guys. He wouldn't be able to stop himself being himself um, long enough to make it work in management. Well, exactly. Yeah, I, I think he's great on TV and he, he shouldn't go back to management. I think there, there's no reason. He's great at what he's doing and... Like I said, I love him. Obviously, you guys do too. He should keep doing it. Yeah, I mean, he's seconds away from a dust-up. If you put him in the room of players as well, something's going to happen. So I think <laughs> for his own safety and player safety, I think it's just best if he just sort of careers onto uh, the TV front. I, I, I think I, I think we should have him and Di Canio form a double management team. Oh, yeah! To see the explosions. <laughs> oh, my word. Oh, doesn't even bear thinking about. Drew, I know you've got a few more examples. You've got about eight or nine minutes. So do you want to sort of run through a couple more names and we can discuss their dis- disappearing acts as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one guy I think that has just fallen off the map is Laurent Blanc, the Frenchman. You know, this guy had a fantastic managerial career. It's not like a lot of the guys that we've talked about were kind of, you know, iffy and, and maybe they had some good moments. Laurent Blanc was fantastic. He won Ligue 1 in France twice with Bordeaux and the Coupe de la Ligue. And I believe one of those was, or two of them was a double. He went to Euro 2012 with France and got them to the quarterfinals. They lost to Spain, you know, the, the greatest international team of all time during that period. And this was, this was a French team that, remember, they had like that huge mutiny at the South Africa World Cup in 2010. And a lot of the players were suspended after that, and he took over this team and was able to kind of, you know, bring some guys in, take some out, and and change it and reformat them. Then he goes to PSG for three years, wins league on every single year, won won a domestic double every year with the Coupe de la Ligue, and then he even won a domestic treble twice, also winning the the French Cup. And then now he hasn't coached since 2016, just absolutely fallen off the map. Now I will say he, uh, from what I read, he got a pretty big severance from PSG, so I'm sure he he was living just okay, uh, just fine, for a few years. But that one's always kind of puzzled me. He's been linked to jobs. Um, Man U and Mourinho got uh, sacked not too long ago. I read that Morocco, the national team, wanted to bring him in last year. So he's had some different uh, offers, but it's always kind of shocked me that he has just faded into the background. And no one has heard for him from him for four years. Again, after a stellar career with two different clubs in France and a, a pretty good job 
with the French national team in only two years. Um, I don't know if you guys have any ideas kind of why he's he's you know gone missing over the past few years because I sure as hell can't figure it out. Okay, let me put... Do, a, do you a, think... Oh. Sorry, Dan, go for it. Yeah, let me put a theory together and I'll see if you can uh, agree with this one or not, Cole. So, obviously, not winning the Champions League was his undoing at PSG. He's already won the World Cup as a player. He's managed his country. He's done a lot of good work in France. Is there just a literally a case of where do I go from here? Yeah, I was going to say to you, Dan, that, that would have been my reasoning. I think if you look at his career as a player and in that career, Drew's just you know called out there as a manager. Do you maybe sit there and think a guy then at that point sort of says, listen, I've had my success and, and I've clearly proved I'm very good. Um I, maybe I don't need to do it now because it can only be downhill from this point on and all I could possibly do is tarnish my reputation. Um, and I think with someone like him, if you look at that career, he's only ever going to come back if the real right job um, comes his way, isn't he? And maybe he's just sat there and thought all the projects that have been put in front of him now don't really meet the criteria that he's looking for. Um, and therefore he's gone, actually, do you know what? I think it's, I'll just put my I'll just put my feet up now. Rest. I don't again. I don't need the financial side of things. So you know why tarn why why possibly risk tarnishing my, my career by going somewhere and it not working out. So I, I would can only assume that must be the reason there. Yeah, I think also another thing to consider. I think you just sort of touched on it is the fact that we spoke before about managers' stock value. You know, if there was a stock market for managers, like Eddie Howe needs to go at the right time. If Laurent Blanc departs PSG or is sacked, he still has a relatively high value where, in theory, if the right project comes along, he could slot in. However, if he does two or three bad jobs, that value goes down rather quickly and then he's not in those sort of top-tier discussions anymore. So he's probably just thinking, right, I've got all the cards, like you say, Cole, I don't really need to work at the moment. If something does come up, I might consider it, but if not, I've done absolutely fantastic anyway. So that's probably the Lauren Blanc one. Drew, give us another one. Yes, so another one that I was kind of... Again, baffled at a little bit. This guy's managerial career wasn't quite as good. Um, but Lothar Mateus, I kind of want to know what's happened to him. Um, right, so great player, of course. Um, but when he became a manager, he's kind of done a world tour. He's managing Austria, Serbia, Brazil, even Israel, of all places. Um, and in 2010, he took over the Bulgaria job to try and lead them to Euro 2012. Uh, they failed. They didn't qualify that year. Um, got sacked as a manager, and he hasn't managed since. Now, he hasn't really fallen all the way out of the limelight. Um, he's done TV work for a couple World Cups, Euros, and even uh, the AFC uh, Championship, or AFC Cup, I'm sorry if I got it wrong, their their version of the Euros in, in Asia. Um, but he hasn't managed since. From what I read, in 2018, he was uh, on Cameroon's exclusive shortlist, which included uh, him as a potential next manager, and um, 76 others. <laughs> so he was close to that one. What an exclusive shot. Yeah, so was... any, anyone with a pulse. <laughs> yeah, pretty anyone much. Anyone with a pulse apply. <laughs> you know, honestly, I got an email from Cameroon also. I thought it was fake. I thought it was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm the prince in Cameroon, and, you know, we need some extra money here. You want to buy my products? I thought it was one of those pretty much. So I turned it down as well. Um, but yeah, you know, for such a fantastic player, again, not that his managerial career was was you know outstanding or, or any way, but kind of the same thing. I kind of wonder what's happened to him. Like he just fell off the map after the Bulgaria job uh, in terms of management, and and hasn't done anything since. 
I kind of wonder if, like how we talked about with Roy Keane or some other guys, if he as well is is comfortable doing TV or kind of sitting back and not worrying about the stresses and rigors of being a manager. I guess, Carl, due to the fact he's had such a nomadic managerial career, he hasn't really pulled up many trees. You know, He's never been in that top-tier discussion like a Laurent Blanc. Do you think he's just got to the point where it's run its natural course and, as Drew says, he's just happy collecting the TV money? Yeah, I guess as well, if you've been a journeyman, that, that's a lot for the family as well, isn't it? You know, you've got to look at the kind of personal side of things. And obviously, there, you know, if you're going to Israel and all these different countries constantly on the move, I can imagine at some point, you know, the wife or someone might say, listen, I'm a bit fed up of this now. You know, again, I can't see him potentially needing the financial aspects of management and being in the job. So maybe he's just got to that point and thought, you know what, I've done the rounds a little bit now. Um, I don't fancy it. I haven't got the desire for it. If I can pick up TV work every World Cup or so, that pays the bills enough. Um, and that's what I'll stick with. And, yeah, I think it's probably more desire in that case because he hasn't settled somewhere and been a long-term manager with lots of success um, and just thinks, I, I don't actually need this this kind of hassle. Unfortunately, I'd love the desire to keep talking, but we've pretty much hit full time. So with more managers, Joe, we might actually revisit this topic. I think there's probably some more names we haven't mentioned, so do hold on to those for another week. But uh, with the clock Ticking out, I need to do the admin, which this week is as simple as thanking my two co-hosts. So, Drew, thanks for your efforts. Thanks for your research, more importantly. A pleasure as always. Yeah, well, thank you for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. Carl, glad to speak with you again that you're back and out of quarantine. Um, but, yeah, absolutely fantastic. I would love to talk about some more managers that have faded into the uh, into the abyss over the past few years. Um, but great chat, guys. And, of course, Bundesliga action today and uh, midweek. And the weekend, it's going to be fantastic. Can't wait to talk next time. Yeah, it's all busy all of a sudden. I mean, we forgot about the Liga and uh, Serie A starting up soon, so we might talk about that next week. But, Cole, you'll be back next week, I hope. Yeah, definitely, Dan. Yeah, pleasure to talk with you boys again and look forward to it next Tuesday. Fantastic. Right, that's everything wrapped up. It just leads me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast Network.